Good evening and happy Mother's Day from KSPC. You're listening to The Interchange. My name is Ann Kirkpatrick. Unemployment amongst formerly incarcerated individuals is a major issue across the United States. On tonight's episode, Devin Brett Kelly sits down with Crossroads Transitional Home Director Jackie White to put the issue in a local context. Next, a humorous look at the mother-child relationship and a fictional performance by Ian Dongla and Anna Shepard, entitled The Phone Call from Hell. Later in the show, The Interchange revisits an interview with Aviva Chomsky by Sergio Rodriguez. Finally, we end the show with a short, humorous essay, Young and Dumb, by friend of the show, Ellie McElvain. This is the last time I will be hosting The Interchange live. If you'd like to call in and wish me a fond farewell, please dial 909-626-5772. That's 909-626-5772. You can also reach out on Facebook or Twitter at username interchange887 or email theinterchange at publicaffairs at kspc.org. Here's Devin Brett Kelly interviewing Jackie White on Crossroads. In the immediate instant, first question is, how do you feel about hiring a felon? A woman with a background. The end, they would always say, now if they were like you ladies, <laughs> I would hire We would both say, we are mm. felons. <laughs> We just need a chance. All they need is a chance. If you don't plant your feet firmly on the ground, and employment is that, if you don't get autonomy and you're not self-sufficient enough to take care of yourself, you are going back to prison. Before I came to college, I never thought I would knowingly work beside someone who had served a life sentence in prison. But I did, and I enjoyed it a lot. This year, I had internships through Scripps Professor Nancy Neiman Auerbach's food justice classes. These internships were in cooperation with Crossroads Transitional Home for Women who had been formerly incarcerated. I worked closely with these ladies in the Crossroads garden as well as in the kitchen making jam for fallen fruits from rising women. During this time, I realized I had a lot of misconceptions about the people who have been through the prison system. Whenever one woman would graduate from the program, they'd have to leave, and I felt like a friend was leaving. And I was concerned for them, especially for their ability to find a job. So I sat down with Crossroads director and former graduate Jackie White. You might remember Jackie from her interchange interview on October 22nd, 2013. Here's our conversation for May 2nd, 2014. Jackie, thank you for meeting with me today. Thank you for having me, Devin. To start off, can you explain what Crossroads is? Crossroads is a reentry home for formerly incarcerated women. And what we do there is we support a woman through education, uh, counseling, um, just about everything that she needs, we have it for her. And our goal is to help her to re-enter society correctly mm-hmm. this time. Mm-hmm. And to keep her from going back and forth through the prison doors. Mm-hmm. Today I'm the program director. But about almost 10 years ago, I came through as a resident. Uh, after going in and out of prison, I decided I needed help. And um, I uh, wrote a letter to Sister Terry Crossroads and asked for residency and hope for residency and they sent me a application back requesting that I give them a fill out a few pages or tell them about myself and what I had been through and what I expected out of my experience at Crossroads and I just went a little step further because I was in, I was desperate and I just knew that if I paroled one more time to Long Beach I, I just might not make it mm-hmm. so I poured my heart into that uh, three-page essay, and then I went on, went on to do a little bit more. And it's that, out of that little bit more is what she said, met, drawn her to my application mm-hmm. because she had a lot of them in. Crossroads offered me what they offer everybody. I think that was what was most effective about Crossroads for me is, as far as other programs are concerned is that the door, 
always swings open and closed. Mm-hmm. So it was a constant reminder that this was my decision to be here and that it was my decision to change my life. Mm-hmm. And because there was a lot of moments where I, you know, you just want to chalk it up, I'll go home. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I could walk in and out of that door, it, it kind of uh, aided me in doing what I needed to do for myself. Mm-hmm. So, what does your current job as program director of Crossroads entail? What I do with them from day one is pick them up from from the prison gates, take them to parole. Mm-hmm. I start the process of docu- getting their documents together because they can't even find a job mm-hmm. without an ID or social security and a social security card. Mm-hmm. Now, for many people, they think that's simple, but if you've ever had anybody that's been out of the system for 25 years, uh, 9-11, and there's uh, several things that have made it much more difficult, challenging, I should say, for you to just go out and just get a birth certificate or mail. Mm-hmm. They don't have any ID. So that's what that's one of the main things that they're asking for is a, a copy of an ID. But not only that, uh, that, we kind of parent them all the way through. These mm-hmm. are adults but they've been gone so long, 34 years, cell phones didn't exist for some of them. Uh, just the, thing, the changes in society. And, you know, at, at the very beginning, we feel like everybody knows we are a felon. Everybody, we feel like we wear it on our foreheads. Mm-hmm. So just navigating the bus system and getting mm-hmm. them out there, encouraging them to do those type of things mm-hmm. uh, is a challenge. It's something that I get to do because... It changed the course of my life mm-hmm. when someone did it for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of these women don't have a, a right-in-your-face addiction, but the addiction can rear its ugly head after 34 years when all everything you're trying to do is hard and difficult and the social changes and those things. You, you could want to just go have a drink. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> so we are, are all alike, and I can see me and them, and I get to do that today. Mm-hmm. So how do you help the women through their job application process with skills and also just applying for a job? Right. Well, a part of our orientation phase, and we have three phases that a woman has to go through in order to complete the residency at Crossroads. It's mm-hmm. orientation, job search, and then it's work, a work phase. Mm-hmm. A part of our orientation phase is to complete the Turning Points course. And Turning Points is a, a strategies for life and career course that we have. Mm-hmm. It's an 18-hour, three-week course that we do. And in that course, we address, of course, relapse prevention, Mm -hmm. uh, self-care, nutrition, Mm -hmm. uh, all those things. But we mainly, our main focus is on work employment. Mm -hmm. We we start with an application, a complete application in its entirety. And we, when the woman leaves Turning Point, she has a master copy Mm. of that application to take with her everywhere she goes and we train them that if you go and because you got to remember these ladies have been gone a long time mm. if you go and you pick up 20 applications in one day and you don't it takes you about a week to fill them out mm. if you have your master application you can sit right there fill out your application and be one of the first mm. because by the time you get back the application is the, the job is gone the old way a lot of our women come with a lot of experience they come with Maybe you've worked 15 years in a dental lab, mm-hmm. uh, optical, cosmetology, landscaping. All of those things may come from one person during mm-hmm. 25 years. You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying to you? So we build a resume there. Mm-hmm. You go to McDonald's, they don't care if you was a landscaper. Yeah. They don't care if you was mm-hmm. a dental, you know, so we try to get them to talk them into that. And then we mm-hmm. make that one that they, the desired one that they really want. We go through, um, we have about 45 questions uh, interviewing questions that an interviewer might ask, and we go through that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the number one question on there is, "Have you ever been convicted of a felony?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, they don't have. They can say, "I'd rather not answer that," mm-hmm. but then you're not really going to look. Mm-hmm. You're not really looking for work either because you're mm-hmm. not going to get the job. Yeah. You know, try to encourage them to tell the truth. And it, and for me, I remember asking that question because I had mm-hmm. two or three jobs before I went came actually came here to work, mm-hmm. and I remember saying. Um, Yes, I, I was convicted of a crime, and they, the employer might ask, would you like to tell me a little bit about mm-hmm. yourself, about that? 
And I said, yeah, at, at, at some point in my, at that point in my life, I was, it was very low and I fell into the wrong crowd mm-hmm. or hard times. Mm-hmm. But, and I ended up in prison. But while I was there, I, I got involved in education. In, I went to school. I did some landscaping. I did some masonry. But what I, I think, I, what I got most out of it is that I was able to take a look at myself and my mm-hmm. life and how I got myself in that position. And if you hire me, you, you won't have a problem with me. You know, you just have to learn to sell the package, which mm-hmm. is you. Mm-hmm. And and I, I can always speak better of myself when I'm telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And I encourage them to do that. You know, mm-hmm. they come with a lot more experience, work experience than I had. But they don't have actual experience. And that's mm-hmm. where I think the problem at is that with our women and getting jobs. They have mm-hmm. no current work history. Mm-hmm. Even if they say, tell the truth and say they were in prison, they don't see that as current out here mm-hmm. with all the distractions and stuff of mm. as current work right yeah what do you think can be done to um, provide more opportunities for formerly incarcerated women to find work I mean it's it, it, it's it's a lot of opportunity our women find work mm-hmm. our women find work it's, a, it's, it's, it's checking the box is not on every application mm-hmm. I can't tell you that I can't say that that's that they can't find work our women are only here six weeks and very six months and very few outside of those that go to social that get on social security you know they're over 62 or whatever I, can, I mean maybe five women have not found work in the five seven eight years I've been here mm-hmm. they find work mm-hmm. it's just for them it's not immediate and it's a minimum wage it's mm-hmm. entry level mm-hmm. but a lot a great percent of our women have moved up after mm-hmm. that because they come with those skills mm-hmm. I can't say I, I just really cannot say that there's not work out there mm-hmm. for there's not if there if it's, it's hard for everybody and our women just fall into the same category as everybody mm-hmm. you know what I mean there should be more opportunities and for those people that won't give them a chance yes I understand it but for everyone that won't there's some that do mm-hmm. and I mean that is the challenge and that is what we have to get over our women are coming out of here at 55 they don't have time at, mm-hmm. at you know 55 to 60 they don't have time to waste mm-hmm. this is why they come here for right here because they, they do need that structure and the, the being a comfort of it when it come when they don't get that job, they can come back and cry on our shoulder or whatever it is mm-hmm. and go back out there. It is out there. I've, I've seen women go every day for 90 days and just almost want to cry and give mm-hmm. up. And they come back. I have one today. Or she starts today, her first day. Mm-hmm. Give up. But it, it's, it's out there. She can't, she, uh, after six, six weeks, she took a McDonald's job, which was two days a week. Mm-hmm. But she didn't stop going out to all these places applying. Mm-hmm. And today she starts her eleven dollar an hour job when he usually starts them at nine. Mm-hmm. Just you know, it's out there. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of help. We do need some help as far as being a felon and ex felons. But the bottom, I think that it comes in when they're trying to like with me when you're trying to promote from one job to the next, from one area in the job to the next, mm-hmm. where the felon comes in. I um. Got my first job out of cro- in Crossroads at Goodwill, at the Goodwill mm-hmm. right there on Gary and Foothill. Mm-hmm. And after eight months, I had moved out of there into our transitional. I wanted to promote to assistant manager, and they wanted me to, and I mm-hmm. promoted to that. Another six months passed. Then they wanted to take me into the manager's position. Then my background was a question. Mm-hmm. Now, I was doing the same amount of work, handling mm-hmm. the same amount of money, handling all of that. Uh, I didn't stick to my guns, and uh, they kept going back and forth with me on the phone. Mm-hmm. Well, they they this right here, and this. so then I took another job. I left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was I had accepted another job. I still was there. I had learned like we teach our women: you don't leave a job until you get another job, and right. you give a notice. I had accepted another job, but I was still there, and I remember answering the phone, and they would say, "Well, Jackie, we're gonna let you give you a try." And I said, "Well, I don't need that try because <laughs> my last day is tomorrow." Yeah. I bet that felt good. <laughs> it did. It really felt good. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, I mean, God God knows there's, uh, we need help in it, but that's mm-hmm. not the problem. Yeah. that's It's, it's not a problem with our women, I, I'll say. I, mm-hmm. I mean, men maybe so, mm-hmm. you know. 
Uh, but I see a lot of doors open for felons. Mm. I see a lot of doors open for felons. I don't want to discourage anybody from opening anymore, but I see mm-hmm. a lot. It's, right. it's, it's, the, uh, it's there. You know, the prison system has changed. So, and so uh, you want to say like dental labs, optical labs. I mean, in there, they're everything. But out here, they got machines that do it now. Mm. So that's obsolete. A lot of the training that we got in prison is obsolete. Mm. The training is 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 the is more of the problem. I mean, our ladies have to work two and three jobs because they can't get they, all they can. I have one lady that works McDonald's, the ninety nine cent store. She goes to school part time. She does this every day. Mm-hmm. She, you, you understand what I'm saying? Because yeah. she came out with a whole lot of different prison training, but there's no jobs out there for landscapers. Yeah. With no school education yeah, behind yeah. there. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And they take what they get. Our ladies get jobs. They go back to school. We encourage that right there. Mm-hmm. To go back to school. I'm, I'm finishing up the last two general eds, or three general eds in my bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, I came out of prison in 92 with nothing but a GED. And I, not, I, I praise God, I, I'm not saying it. You know, looking at it, looking down at GED. But mm-hmm. I mean, that's all I had accomplished in my life. And mm-hmm. up until two thousand five, that's what I came out of, came to crossroads with. You mm-hmm. know, education was so far on the back of my the back of my brain. You know what I mean? Um, today, you know, I'm two or three classes away from my bachelor's. But I mean, I I have residents that I've ushered through that are doing the same thing that I'm doing right mm-hmm. now. You know, they come home with AAs. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They come home from prison with an A degrees, a, a degree in theology, mm-hmm. whatever. I got two or three that are, have completed their alcohol and drug certificates. They're mm-hmm. counselors. I mean, it's difficult to get hired on parole, but mm-hmm. when they are, when they're ready, they're ready. So it's more about finding programs like this, right? Do you think the box that you have to check if you're formally incarcerated needs to be eliminated. Definitely. Yeah. But I mean, and I don't mean to say but to take away from that answer, but I mean, when they do a life scan, there you go. Mm-hmm. That they, they, most jobs now are asking for that, depending on where you're working at. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You gotta do, then the prejudice is still there. Yeah. Like in the in-home care service department, uh, that's taking care of the elderly or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, for years, being a, they didn't do a background, they didn't do a life scan. But when people start wanting to, fellas start wanting to take care of their parents and stuff like that. And and, I, and as for the safety, don't get me wrong, I understand. It's just like with child care. But, I mean, how would you stop me from taking care of uh, a relative? Because mm-hmm. I had, what's mm-hmm. sister? So the life scan is still checking the box. Mm-hmm. Now, the... The little entry le- the the entry level jobs and stuff like that that won't make a difference because they won't do a life scan mm. or what. But uh, you know what I'm saying? There's yeah. still blocks out there. We just have to change the whole uh, the whole the whole, the whole system. Yeah, because it seems to me that you can get these entry level jobs because there is no life scan. Right. But then it's preventing women from getting the jobs that they have the skills, skills for, for and they deserve just because of this background scan when you've done your time. You know? That's the part right yeah. there. And, and you know, just, just making a change, it is scary. I mean, I worry about uh, just me as, I, I want to represent crossroads, felons, women, cor- Correctly, because I don't want to do anything that might damage how far we've came. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to do anything. And I stress that with our women. You represent something much bigger than yourselves. Mm-hmm. Not that they do anything wrong, but they're looking. You, when you, you repre- when people look at you, you're changing the minds of for other people. Mm-hmm. Especially with students and, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. These are doctors and lawyers coming up. We want to, you know, show them our best mm-hmm. and be our best, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have come a long way, but we still have so far to go. I go, I, I used to go, and we'll start back soon, but I used to have time to go 
me and an old, uh, uh, old co-worker of mine, we would go to employers for turning points, trying to get us mm-hmm. in the door, and we would interview, and we would just go in with our pamphlets and just ask in the immediate instant. First question is, how do you feel about hiring a felon, mm-hmm. a woman with a background, a barrier? I just don't know if I want to take a chance, Mm. the insurance, the other people, Mm. so many things. And then we just continued talking, and me and her really clicked together. Mm -hmm. You know, we would just feed off of each other and go back and forth. And at Mm. the end, they would always say, now, if they were like you ladies, (laughs) I would hire them. We would both say, we are Mm. felons. And they would be like, you know what I mean? Yeah. The stereotype that they right. have, you know, everybody, even if they do have, I got tattoos, but everybody doesn't have to have tattoos mm. or look all, you know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they all oh, don't know. Mm-hmm. Then we never would say we just say we were employees because we were employees of Crossroads mm-hmm. and Turning Points. We were mm-hmm. job developers, you know. Mm-hmm. That's how it would always end, and they would like, "Well, I'll hire you." I've had people. I've, I've gone to places in there. Oh, I'll hire you today. <laughs> you know, I'll hire both of you. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that even that was five years ago, and mm-hmm. things have changed. So mm-hmm. I, I, I have women working. Our women get great jobs mm-hmm. today. It's they have to be out there, and I'm not saying that the average person is not out there like our women, but our women are out there if they really want a job. And I know I can tell. They'll leave this office at 10 o'clock, and they'll come back home mm. by 5 every day, 5 mm. days a week. Mm-hmm. Re- and they, they'll show me their paperwork, or they've written down every place they've been. And the average person doesn't do that. They might fill out a one job mm. a day. That's why they, our women get jobs. Mm. I'm not saying that they constitute all felons, but our women from Crossroads get jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll get that job. If they get, sometimes they get discouraged, and we do have some, we have a memorandum of understanding with a McDonald's owner who owns 14 McDonald's mm. that she will hire out of there, or at least give them a, a interview, mm. uh, where she, most McDonald's or, or any office will say, here's take an application, and they throw it in the drawer. Mm. With ours, she will have her, her managers, each of them will interview, mm. and, and they can go to any one of her 14 stores any amount of time until they get it right. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying to you. Um, So they have options. They have other options Mm -hmm. where they can, but sometimes they'll get discouraged and say, I'll just take the McDonald's job. Mm -hmm. But when they take that, then they get a little breath of fresh air and they go back and they hit the grind again. And Mm -hmm. then, like I said, the lady just started today. You know, our ladies, because of our training and, you know, who better to present life as a felon than me? Mm-hmm. And our, you know, we have two or three staff members who are felons. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it can be done. Mm-hmm. No, nobody gave me this job, not this position or the other one. I interned, mm-hmm. got the job, and promoted to this. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah. a realtor, a great, a big realtor in Claremont called and said, "I want to hire one of your women." Mm-hmm. Uh, he came back in yesterday and said, uh, "I'm going to keep her." <laughs> he had n- never, uh, never hired a felon or anything mm-hmm. out of a real estate office. You know, mm-hmm. I've had a lot of them come back. It's, it's like with the McDonald's owner, Sister Terry asked her, "Just try one woman." Mm-hmm. Now, throughout out of that, we've had three or four women that turned went to management. Wow, uh, went into management of the stores and constantly uh, evolving in there in that system. How do you think like woman women's ability to find work affects the recidivism rate? <laughs> do you know? Well, the ability to find work uh, well, just stay out of prison it affects it. But if you don't find work, you're going back to prison eventually. So, you know, to be able to find work definitely it cuts down on job security for the prison system and it keeps mm. us from going back in. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't, there's very few women that are not, if you don't go to work, or men too, if you don't get a job, if you don't feel a part of, become a part of society, of the community that you're working in and start paying the taxes, those are the things that make us feel like we are part of something bigger than ourselves mm. and great. Mm-hmm. The plant, if you don't plant, plant your feet firmly on the ground, and employment is that. 
If you don't get autonomy and you're not self-sufficient enough to take care of yourself, you are going back to prison. Because you're going to go back to the ways that you know how to get money, how you, that make you feel like, feel better. You cannot, you, 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 if you don't, if you can't take care of yourself, you're not going to stay out. Mm. I want the best for these women. I want the best, not only for mine, our women, I said mine, <laughs> old Mother Hubbard who has, <laughs> but for our women, but for recovering addicts, uh, felons, I fit into all that. We, I, I, at this point in my life, there's, I get choked up about this because a lot of people will say, I'm back to my old self again, but I have never been this good. Mm-hmm. I have never, I've never been this good. And I am not an exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. We just need a chance. Just a chance to learn to, just a chance, just a, mm-hmm. just a chance to, to give, to show you what we can do. Mm-hmm. You know, with so little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like I said, it's the first job I got and I realized that I was taking care of myself. I could take care of myself. It's amazing what 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 it'll do for a person's self esteem. Mm hmm. It's amazing. I re- can I'm gonna tell you this last thing. I remember when I got out of crossroads, I was out maybe two and a half years and I had a car car broke down and I remember calling Sister Terry and I, Sister Terry I was just crying my car broke down she was like calm down calm down we'll see what we can do but in my tears I didn't choked up and I, I must have sounded horrible to her because she was saying calm down it can be worked out and I was like no you don't understand I have the money. I've learned how to save my money. I've, I can take care of myself. You don't understand what that would mean to a person, what that does to a person. You don't want to damage any part of society. You you want to give. You want to be a productive part of society. And that's what we teach here. Every 75% of any money that comes through Crossroads, whether it be through family, uh, work goes into savings. We in, to savings, and when they get a job, then we go take them and we open a bank account, and we still monitor that they save it. But we teach them how to save money and go in it. Put your put your seventy five percent in it. Your twenty five percent is what they spend because we provide everything they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned those skills, and 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 she could not. I I couldn't get it out. I don't need that. That's not what I'm calling for. I'm calling because I can pay for it myself today. Yeah. You know, that's all we need is a chance. Yeah. I, I'm not telling you 100% of us are, can't will do it or can do it. But the greater majority, all they need is a chance. I've seen that happen over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I guess the greatest part of my job is to see them at their lowest point and know it's going to be better. You just stick to it and, and saying it every day. It's going to be, it is already all right. Mm-hmm. You just have to be a willing participant in your own recovery and re mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs>
N-E-I-M-A-N at scripscollege.edu. Keep the food justice movement growing. So I feel like I should note that the following scene on the interchange by Ian Dongla and Anna Shepard is partially based on a true story. So I've decided to dedicate it to my mom, Laurel, in hopes that she gets a laugh out of it this Mother's Day. Love you, mom. Thank you for listening to The Interchange here on KSPC. Hi, Mom. Hello? Hello, Mom. Hold on one second. Hello? Hello. Oh, that's better. Where, where are you? At home. What's going on? Just a few friends are over for dinner. We're doing a little Friday night get-togethers. Since you left... <laughs> Liz, wine is in the kitchen. No, no, no. The kitchen, yes. That way. <laughs> Sorry, honey. What's up? Nothing. Just finishing up some work. Work? It's Friday. Are you going out later? Probably not. I have midterms and... Uh... <laughs> Liz, Liz, where, where are you? <laughs> Mom, are you, are, you, are you drunk? What's that, honey? Oh my god, you're drunk. I have two glasses of wine. Liz made jello shooters. I know, I know what jello shooters are. Hey, what do you need? What? What, what do you need? You're just going to be snarky. Why don't you just ask for the money and hang up so can, I can get back? Can a son work? just not call his own mother on a Friday night just to check in? Because the only reason you've ever called me for my... Oh my god, Liz! Who is, who's Liz? I met her in a spin class. You're, you're taking a spin class? Yes, I've had a lot more time on my hands. I might as well take advantage of it. Well, that, that, that's great, Mom. I'm also doing yoga, water aerobics, ooh, and I joined a book club we just read Fifty Shades of Grey. You're reading Fifty Shades of Grey? Hey, please don't go all college snob on me. I actually think it has some literary value. Mom, it's... it's smut. Have you ever read it? God, no! God, I've not read Fifty Shades of Grey, mother. Well then, what do you know? Could you... could you just... could you... could you put Buddy on the phone? Would you just want me to put the dog on the phone? Yes, I would... I would like you to put the dog on the phone. What, what did I do? Could you please just put the dog on the phone? Well, I'm trying to understand what you're trying to do. Just put Buddy on the phone. If you want to talk to the dog... Hi, buddy. Who's a good boy? Who's a good... Yeah. Buddy, it's Buddy is dead. What? I'm sorry, buddy. Liz, Liz... What Liz. are you ta- What are you saying? I'm coming back from the lawyer's office, and he had gotten out on the street, and I didn't... You say, hit Buddy with your car? Is that what you're telling... You're telling me you hit our dog with your car? And it was terribly tragic, really. I'm sorry. When did this happen? Oh, a couple of weeks ago. A couple weeks ago? I didn't have midterms. I didn't want to give you more and you didn't tell me. I was stressed out. I didn't see him. It all happened so fast. Where, where did you Where did you say you were coming back from? What? Where did you say you were coming back from? I didn't say I was coming back. You said you were coming back from a lawyer's office. Why do you need I a lawyer? Anything but a lawyer's office. Here you are putting words in my mouth. I am your mother. I heard you say I it. Your father and I are getting divorced. What? Trust me, this is for the best. Really, the only reason we were still together was because of you. It was a long time coming. Would you please just? Pay attention for one second. I am. Look, honey, these things happen. We're not mad. We're just ready to move on. It's you didn't even tell me. Well, we didn't want you to worry. Everything's fine, really. Liz, can't you see? I have to say, I really do not even know what to say. My dog is dead. My parents are getting divorced. I'm finding all this out from some drunken phone call Excuse with me. me. But as I remember, you were the one who called me. You were the one it's not my fault that you were staying in on a Friday. Mom, I have work to do. You have the rest of your life to work, honey. Go out and have some fun. Meet a lady. Just remember to... Mom, 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 stop, stop. I just want you to be safe, honey. I just want what's best for you. If you wanted what was best for me, you would have told me about all of this. I'm sorry, you're right. It was just never call, and I couldn't bring myself to call you, and ruin all the fun you're having. Well, I, I would have appreciated it. I mean, Jesus. I know, I'm, I'm 
You know, since you uh, mentioned it earlier, I, uh, I am a little low on... I knew it. I knew it. My own son would never call me unless it was for some sort of money. You mentioned purpose. that I, I, I could use a little bit of money. I don't, I, I'm a little... I was just trying to take it. I was just trying She is a pulp. Fine. I, I, I really just called for money. Could you please just send me some money? I'm totally broke. I ran out of meals. I've been eating ramen for the past two days. I could just, I really need money. You like me. I lied to you. you. You killed my dog and are getting a divorce and you didn't even tell me. How's that for I, a lie? I can't believe I felt that. My son calling me. Um, I could just, I, I really could use some money, please. I, I'm, I'm, I'm begging you. I could really use some money. Fine. I'll transfer some into your account. Thank you. Oh, please. I gotta get, for Christ's sake. Could you please transfer the money as I have soon to go. Liz, as literally on top of the I'm on the KSPC blog. What's that? It's a place to comment or post ideas for KSPC. Wow, that sounds cool. Yeah, come check it out. What do I do? Just go to KSPC.org. Cool. See you there. Hi everyone, this is Sergio Rodriguez here with the KSPC Poetry Program. This week we did not bring a poetry speaker, but we did bring a past professor here at Pomona College. Uh, we were very fortunate to have her, and so we just wanted to schedule a little interview with her and get to know her even more. And so here is uh, Aviva Chomsky, and she'll tell you guys a little bit about herself. Okay, and maybe, um, although apologizing for not being a poet, I'll say something about a poem um, just to get started, because... Uh, I think there's there's one particular poem by the Guatemalan poet Otto René Castillo called Los Intelectuales Apolíticos, the Apolitical Intellectuals, that was probably one of the biggest influences on me, so much so that, in fact, in a talk a few weeks ago, somebody asked me, like, what's my approach to history? How would I explain my approach to history? And I said, well, I think I got my approach to history from that poem. And uh, I can't recite the whole thing for you, unfortunately. I don't have it here. But... Um, it's it's written to the apolitical intellectuals who pretend that the actual society around them doesn't exist and they're just um, kind of off in their on their abstractions in their ivory tower and they don't notice the people who come every day to deliver their tortillas and to fix their shoes and um, that never appear in the books of the apolitical intellectuals. And it's sort of like a call to intellectuals not to be those apolitical intellectuals. And that definitely uh, helped me become the intellectual, the political intellectual that I am. Oh, that's really nice to hear. Um, if it's okay with you, um, could you tell us a little bit more about where you come from, you know, um, where your passions lie and um, kind of uh, what you see yourself doing in the future? Sure. Um, so I taught here at Pomona for a semester last spring, but now I'm back at my home institution, which is Salem State University in Massachusetts. And my specialty is Latin American history, but I also teach world history and U.S. Latino history. Because both of those are so integrally related with Latin American history. But there's two areas that I especially work in. Um, as a political intellectual, and one is on immigration. I've published one book um, called They Take Our Jobs and 20 Other Myths About Immigration, and I have a new book coming out in May called Undocumented, How Immigration Became Illegal. And I've taught U.S. Latino history for a number of years. Um, I was trained in Chicano studies, among other fields, uh, at UC Berkeley, both as an undergraduate and as a graduate student there. And when I went back to the East Coast and started teaching, there was a real dearth of Latino history. In a way, I'd say there still is on the East Coast, a real dearth of Latino history. And so I started developing some courses in that. And I've been involved in immigrant rights movements ever since the 1970s, 1980s, my days at, uh, at Berkeley. But as I taught and had many conversations over the years, I became increasingly frustrated with hearing people repeat the same sort of truisms over and over again that had absolutely no basis in reality, but people just say them as if they knew what they were talking about. Things like, oh, immigrants take American jobs, um, 
why don't they come here legally? I don't have anything against immigration, just against illegal immigration. Um, so I wrote the book, They Take Our Jobs and 20 Other Myths About Immigration, because I was so tired of repeating the same things over and over again. I thought, I'll just write it down, and then people will have access. Why don't people know this? And in a way, it felt like um, I didn't even deserve credit for writing the book, because everything in it was so obvious. But on the other hand, nobody knows it. So I guess I had to write the book. Um, and I think it's helped a lot of people understand what's really going on with immigration um, and get beyond some of those myths. And um, since I wrote that book, I've gotten much more involved in undocumentedness specifically for a number of reasons. And one of them is because of the level of youth and student activism among undocumented people that's just really inspiring and I wanted to be able to write about a little. But also um, getting a lot more involved with local undocumented communities on the North Shore of Boston, especially from, from Guatemala, and just learning a lot more in depth about what it means to be undocumented uh, in the United States. And so I decided to do another another book about that. The other area that I work um, both in research and uh, politics is with extractivism in Latin America, in particular coal mining in Colombia. Um, people say this is the era of neo-extractivism in Latin America, that there's a huge uh, global demand for some of the primary resources, mineral and energy resources of Latin America, and there's been a huge sort of jump in investment in the last 10 years, and production and extractivism. And extractivism, of course, is built into Latin American history since colonial times, but this this new sort of rush for the minerals, and it's always been immensely destructive of both people, workers, and communities, and the natural environment. Um, but this this new rush of foreign investment and expansion of the mining industry is bringing to new levels the environmental and social destruction associated with, with extraction. So I work in the coal mining region in northern Colombia with um, Afro-Colombian and indigenous communities that are displaced and affected by coal mining. These are multinational mines. All the coal is exported. Um, and also with the union in the mine. And it's really interesting thinking about uh, issues of labor environmentalism, and that's kind of where my research is going. Um, labor and environmental history, why does nobody ever think about them together? They're like completely d separate disciplines, um, and yet they're so intimately related. And I think when, when we talk to the Colombians, we can see much more clearly how narrowly we sometimes think in the United States. So like, oh, environment is this, and labor is this, and they're not related. Whereas from the Colombian perspective, I think it's easier to see how the whole system functions and how exploitation of labor and, and abuses against workers and environmental destruction go together within this system of neo-extractivism that works to the benefit of multinationals and of consumers in the United States and, and Europe and Japan, um, and to the detriment of practically everyone in Colombia, although, of course, there are certain sectors there that are benefiting from this new system as well. That's really, really inspiring. Um, very passionate. Seems like you have a lot of passions. It's pretty, it's a myriad of passions, and that's really nice to see. Um, so one of the things I wanted to hear more about was just your work with undocumented students, just because, um, you know, um, this month is actually, you know, come out month for undocumented students. So oh, a lot really? of, yes, yeah, so a lot of students are coming out and they're, you know, showing who they are because, you know, it's another rhetoric that they're trying to kind of form. And so I wanted to hear more about um, your work with undocumented students um, and kind of do you see kind of any prospective legislation coming soon or what is um, kind of your perspective on the Immigration Reform Act that they have introduced? Okay, so that's a lot of different topics, but I'll try to talk about all of them. Well, why don't I start with immigration reform? Um, of course, I've been following closely over many years, um, and I'm a historian, so I have studied previous immigration reforms in a lot of depth. And I, I feel like the proposals that are being discussed now for immigration reform in a lot of ways are very similar to what was being discussed in the 1980s that um, resulted in IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. And like with IRCA, um, the proposals that are being discussed in Congress now are based on the premise that immigrants are bad people and have to be punished. 
So they're also based on an understanding of how necessary immigrant labor is in the economy, but there's a very negative, punitive side to it. So the only way to um, do anything that would help immigrants is at the same time to do something to harm them. And that's exactly what the immigration reform of 1986 did. created the possibility for legalization for large numbers of immigrants, but not all, because it had to have this, well, but there's still something bad about immigrants. We have to punish them in it. Um, so large numbers of people were left out of uh, and did not get access to legalization in 1986. And the IRCA also created uh, the employer sanctions provisions, which have made it not necessarily harder for immigrants to work, undocumented immigrants to work, but easier for them to be exploited because of the employer sanctions. So the proposals that are being tossed around today are much worse um, in terms of their punitiveness. Um, The militarization of the border and all of the human suffering that's been exacerbated and caused by that, that really happened after 1986. Um, It started in the 90s. But the today's proposals, they start with what they call enforcement, and that's the punitive side of immigration reform. That's how we're going to punish people, how we're going to make people suffer, how we're going to make people die. That's, That's like what they call enforcement. And enforcement is front and center in today's proposals. At the same time, they are proposing some kind of path to legal status. So it's really for some people, um, maybe between a third and two-thirds of the people who are undocumented, the some 11 to 12 million people who are undocumented in the U.S. today. So it's really hard to oppose something that is going to create the possibility of a path to legal status for so many people who are currently forced to live in the shadows. But it's really hard to support something that you know is also going to greatly increase human suffering. So um, to me, some of the most hopeful immigration measures that are being discussed now are not the national level comprehensive immigration reform, but are state level initiatives. Um, In Massachusetts, we have three state level initiatives going on right now. One is for in-state tuition for undocumented students. You have that here in California, but we don't have that yet in Massachusetts. So, And this is something we've been fighting for for over a decade, um, but it's coming up again. Um, so that's something that has no downside. It has no punitive side to it, granting students who are undocumented the ability to be considered state residents and um, attend institutions of higher learning as state residents. The other two, one is the safe driving bill. And again, I can't remember. Do you have that yet in California? Is, can uh, people who are undocumented get driver's licenses? With DACA? Um, no, uh, no, not with DACA. Anybody? Um, not with anybody. But I think they think they might have given a legislation, a prospective legislation or passing of a legislation, but we don't you have, don't it, have yet. it yet. Okay. Yeah. So same thing in Massachusetts. A bill has been introduced, and um, but we don't have it yet. But there are several states that have passed it. Even in New England, um, I believe Vermont um, mm. now has start, started in January opened a path for people who are undocumented to get driver's licenses. And this is really important, both for the safety of the roads, that is, people should be able to learn how to drive Mm -hmm. (laughs) and pass a test and and know the laws. So, I mean, everybody's safety is, is improved by creating access to driver's licenses for people who are undocumented, because people who are undocumented have to drive. There's just no way around it. And if they can't get driver's licenses, they're going to drive without driver's licenses. So enabling them to get driver's licenses makes the roads much safer. Um, It's also really important for undocumented people, because one of the main ways that um, the Obama administration has been able to so vastly increase the deportation rates up to 400,000 a year uh, has been through a program called Secure Communities, which catches people uh, on very minor violations of the law um, or even no violation of the law. So people can be stopped while they're driving if they commit a minor infraction or even if they don't commit any infraction. They can be, the police can stop you when you're driving. And if you don't have a license, you can then be arrested and turned over to secure communities, which happens automatically now if you're arrested anywhere in the country, and then be put into deportation proceedings. Now, the rationale for secure communities is that by working through local law enforcement agencies, they're going to be deporting people who have committed crimes. Well, Driving while Latino is not usually considered to be a crime, and yet um, 
this is the so-called criminals who are being deported through the Secure Communities Program. So enabling people who are undocumented to get a driver's license is going to make people a lot safer because they can no longer be deported for driving while Latino. Um, okay, so that was the immigration reforms. Oh, and then so the last piece of legislation that many states are discussing, passing, and is being discussed in Massachusetts, again, I'm not sure what the status is in California, is a way to try to stand up to secure communities. Now, secure communities, it was a Bush-era program, but Obama vastly expanded it. He claimed it was voluntary, but when the state of Massachusetts tried to call him on that and say, well, we don't want to participate, the governor of Massachusetts said, uh, we don't want to be part of this. The administration came back and said, oh, well, actually, we were wrong. It's not voluntary. You have to be part of it. So it's since been expanded to every jurisdiction in the country. But the Trust Act, which is being discussed in Massachusetts, allows local law enforcement agencies to refuse to honor immigration detainers. So if somebody's arrested on some kind of minor charge, their data, biometric data, is automatically sent to ICE. That's with secure communities. There's no way they can get out of that. But then ICE asks them to hold the person while ICE comes to pick them up. They don't have to do that anymore. If the Trust Act is passed, then the local law enforcement agencies can use their own judgment about whether this is somebody they want to hold or someone they want to release. So those are the three the three state-level types of legislation that are that are going around that I think in a lot of ways it's a lot easier to get behind and fight for than comprehensive immigration reform as it is currently written. Um, so what was your other question, your first question now? Was <laughs> I work with undocumented students? Yeah, you work with undocumented uh, okay. students. So, I mean, this is one of the things that was so exciting about being in California and being at the five C's is I feel like the undocumented students here are so empowered and so well organized. And I was just really impressed to see that you are out and open and have an organization and hold events. Nothing like that happens in Massachusetts. Um, we do have undocumented students at Salem State where I teach. Nobody really knows how many because most undocumented students are, are not out. There's no visible um, undocumented student organization or voice or presence. I think people are not at all empowered in the current political climate in Massachusetts, even though Massachusetts is thought of as a sort of a liberal state, and in many ways it is. But I think this is an issue that people are just, that we're really backward on. <laughs> Alrighty, so before we finished off, I just wanted to ask you one last thing, just some tips, advice, um, on just kind of move this movement forward, how to become more progressive, um, kind of how to stand for yourself. Well, I mean, I'm really impressed because, I mean, people who are undocumented are really vulnerable. Um, and yet, I think we've also seen numerous examples where standing up and making your voices heard has actually um, pushed your movement forward. And in fact, I'm remembering a conversation we had at Salem State. Um, up until about 10 years ago, Salem State actually had a policy of not admitting students who were undocumented. Um, nobody at the university even knew about this, but it was a written policy that was enforced by the admissions office. Um, but nobody talked about it, nobody knew about it. And when we first found out about it uh, and had a meeting with some, some faculty who wanted to try to change it, one of the faculty members suggested that um, we should just do this really quietly and um, you know try to talk to people in the administration and get it changed but, but not do anything public. And another faculty member said, the president of, of our faculty union, in fact, said, so I don't know of any historical example of a movement for social change that has succeeded by being quiet. That's <laughs> um, so true, and and that really really stuck with me too. And I think that the I think that the visibility of undocumented students, um, undocumented youth, is what forced Obama to um, to create the DACA program. So I more of the same. Like I can't give you advice. You guys are are the ones who are doing it. This was Sergio Rodriguez with the KSPC Poetry Program. I just want to thank Aviva Chomsky for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. The KSPC Poetry Program airs every other week at 6 p.m. through the interchange. Hope to see you all in two weeks. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. 
Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ellie McElvain is a senior at Scripps College and a rising star in the comedy world. Ellie is president of 5C Late Night Stand-Up and frequently performs stand-up comedy on campus. She also has a sizable Twitter following, having been included among the best women tweets, according to the Huffington Post. KSPC listeners may recognize her humor from Monday Night Live on KSPC, Mondays at 10 p.m. You can follow Ellie on Twitter at EllieMCE. Tonight, Ellie McElvain shares a sample of her written work with The Interchange. The following essay is entitled, Young and Dumb. Listen, I know how young I am. And I know that I know nothing at all because of how young I am. And I definitely know that you either wish you were this young again or are so, so glad you're not this young anymore. And I know that I have a long time to go before I even need to start worrying about where I'm going with my life or career and that it seems so fast-paced and intense right now, but really I'm so, so young and I should just keep my head down and continue on and any worries about anything should be but a blip on my young little consciousness. And believe me, I know that as a young person, I should have fun. And that some of you may think that the best, most fun times of my life will be right in this young moment. And oh man, remember drinking cheap brews on dirty apartment rooftops and listening to good slash bad music? And I know that some of you may reassure me that these are not the best, most fun moments of my life. That it will get better. But I should still be having fun, like a lot of it. And I also know that I should stop using like superfluously because though I'm young, employers will not like that in their office cultures. Because also as a young person, I know that I am a representation of our grim future. So as a young person, I should spend less time on the internet and more time reading books. However, I know that as a young person, I should capitalize on my natural familiarity with technology and learn how to utilize the internet and social media and app building programs and everything in between so I can truly capitalize on whatever it is I want to do, because that is the future. Additionally, as this young person, I know I should get a head start and save money and have 15 to 20 internships because then I will be young and ahead of the curve and networking, networking, networking with older people who can help me when I get older. In any case, I'm so young that I know I should also quit worrying about anything and sip on a Coca-Cola and forget to reapply sunscreen and kiss boys because you're only young once. But I can't focus too much about kissing boys because I'm so young. But also really maybe focus a lot about kissing boys because I'm so young. And I know that I know nothing at all because of how young I am. So finally, listen up babies and toddlers. I know how old I am and I have some advice and life lessons to share with you. Do you even know how young you are? Two, three, four. I'll tell you something, something you don't need to know. You just heard comedian and script senior Ellie McElvain reading her essay, Sometimes Young and Dumb. Stay tuned for more of The Interchange. Let's go! I know it's easy to make things stay the way that they are. Thank you for listening to The Interchange on KSPC. My name is Anne Kirkpatrick, and it has been a pleasure hosting the show for the past three years. Mark your calendars because the last episode of the semester airs next week and will feature goodbyes from Claremont College seniors who work and volunteer here at the station. The Interchange will then return in the fall with new host, Anna Shepard. Special thanks this week to Devin Brett Kelly and Jackie White. 
Music this week includes My Song by Gumi, Wild Man Blues by Johnny Dodds, Black Bottom Street, and Spark Spark by Salam Saeed. If you want to revisit tonight's episode or an earlier episode from our archives, subscribe to our podcast or visit interchange887.blogspot.com. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can contact The Interchange on Facebook or Twitter at username interchange887 or email us at publicaffairs at kspc.org. Stay tuned to KSPC for the sound of pictures with Tom Skelly.